Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass, and Alan Joachim is not with me. I know a lot of you people are going to be very disappointed. I myself am relatively delighted. Uh, don't tell Alan I said that, though. Um, he is on his way back home. He's on a long trip. We can now say that because by the time this airs, he will already be home and there will be no chance of somebody walking into his house without him knowing it. Anyways, that was his great fear. Whatever. God bless you, Alan. I hope that you had a wonderful trip. I know that you did. Um, hey, uh, if you haven't yet, ladies and gentlemen, do us a favor, subscribe wherever you're listening to us, uh, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Google, whatever, um, wherever you are. If that comes with the opportunity of leaving us a rating or a review, uh, could you do that? Could you do us a huge favor and leave us a rating and a review, preferably five stars, no less than five stars. Uh, yeah, that would really help us. Also, let your friends and uh, family and neighbors, uh, school teachers, principals, um, co-workers, let them know about the show. Uh, spread it around. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet, John Wick 4 is absolutely amazing. Uh, watch that Two weekends ago, um, opening weekend, a lot of fun. If you've not watched the John Wick movies and you're a big fan of either Keanu Reeves or really cool action flicks, uh, watch that series. And boy, did John Wick 4 end on a fabulous note. Even more fabulous, I got retweeted, Sons of History got retweeted by the great Scott Adkins. Yeah, the guy who plays Killa in John Wick 4 which is very cool. Thanks, Scott. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, you are awesome. Hey, uh, speaking of films, uh, streaming on Epic TV, Epic TV, E-P-O-C-H TV, is our World War II documentary. It's our very first full-length, uh, full-fledged documentary. It is called The War Stories of George Khalil. You can go and watch that now. Um, I don't know exactly how much it costs, but you can... Uh, get on Epic TV and and watch it. So do us a favor and do that. Also, I have my JFK Jr. documentary that is out. Uh, if you really want to know what happened to JFK Jr. on that fateful night in the summer of 97, I believe, uh, watch that. I do a thorough investigation on all that was transpiring around his life and what he did during that, during that flight uh, before and during uh, which will make you scratch your head. Also, I have another personal documentary on American communism. You can watch that and find out exactly how much communist thought ideology has infiltrated America and the things that we do or that we, uh, we don't even think about is tied to communism or socialism uh, that we do really just about every day. Uh, it's very interesting, um, and I would say that it's not good. It's gotten out of hand, but all you got to do is watch that, uh, take notes, and and you'll see what I'm talking about. Newsletter sign up. Hey, we send a send out a weekly newsletter about whatever is going on at the Sons of History, whatever we're doing. So if you want to, you can sign up. Uh, just shoot us an email at uh, the Sons of History at gmail.com. Or you can just DM us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and I will add you personally to our 
newsletter. Lastly, um, no, I think that's it. I think that's it. We're going to get right into the show. I don't really have anything uh, great to tell you. Uh, nothing's going on in my life in particular that is worthy of note. Alan is on a, has been on a vacation, so that's cool. He'll talk about that whenever he gets back. So I'm going to bring in our guest, Frank Castigliola. He is a board of trustees, distinguished professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Uh, he is the former president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. He is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Philosophical Society, the Norwegian Nobel Institute, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, and NATO. Now, he's written a number of books. He's written a ton of articles and uh, different things like that, essays. But his books include The Kennan Diaries, Roosevelt's Lost Alliances, Awkward Dominion, American Political, Economic, and Cultural Relations with Europe, 1919 to 1933, France and the United States, the Cold Alliance since World War II, and his latest, the one that I read here recently and did a review for the Epoch Times, Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. And last but not least, uh, he raises his grass-fed beef in stores, Connecticut. Uh, not in stores like a place, but... Uh, a location, S-T-O-R-R-S. Uh, so without further ado, we've got Frank Castigliola on the line. I am honored, privileged, and super excited to talk to him about uh, Kennan, George F. Kennan, containment policy, uh, all that jazz, Soviet Union, America, all it's going to be a fun conversation. So without further ado, George is on the line. I, I take that back. Frank is on the line. George is dead, but we're going to be talking about George. So, Frank, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. It's good to be on. It's an honor to be on. Well, I'm I'm glad you think so. Um, and I will tell you this: it is an honor to have you uh, on the show uh, to discuss this fantastic figure, uh, George Kennan. Um, what a what a life uh, he led. Your your book, Kennan: A Life Between Worlds. I. I loved it. Um, it is it is rich with just so much information about not just his life, but American foreign policy that played such a pivotal role in pretty much all of the half of the, the 20th century, the last half of the 20th century. And we're going to get to that, um, the long telegram and the X article and everything. But first, I want people to know a little bit about you. I, I read that you ended up dropping out of school after the fifth grade, but, but you no, ended no, no, my parents did. Oh, your, your parents, parents did. did. My parents did. No, no, I, I, you know, I had much more boring life. I, <laughs> I went on to sixth grade. Let's put it that way. I went on to sixth grade. My parents did. They're both poor Italian immigrants, and they had to drop out to make money. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I must have misread that on the, um, the I think it's the foreign, American Foreign Relations Society um, so, but you ended up getting your PhD at Cornell. Um, that is, that is quite a leap from your parents having to drop out of school to make ends meet and you going on to get your PhD in Cornell. Um, what did you get your PhD in? American, American foreign relations history, you know, and, but, you know, partly cause I was, you know, I was born in 1946 in a way that's part of the, the, the 
you know, people talked about the, the good fortune of the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And I was the first year of the baby boomers. And I think it's not a coincidence that whatever we think of them, the three American presidents, recent presidents, born in 1946. Clinton, second Bush, and Donald Trump. So, you know, that was was a good year to be born. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a great year to be born. Um, the the war was over. Um, and so that's that's always always a plus. And speaking of 1946, isn't that the year that George Kennan wrote the long telegram? That's right. February 22nd is Washington's birthday. And that's part of the story. Washington's birthday in 1946. So um, give us a, a bit of a rundown uh, about George Kennan, who he was. And let's jump right into as well as the long telegram and what that was. Okay, so Kennan wrote this long telegram in February 46 from Moscow. Um, Kennan, <clears throat> you know, I had to say one thing about the capsule understanding of George Kennan. He's a man of enormous talent, just fantastic writer, brilliant thinker, talented in all kinds of ways. But the only thing greater than his talent was his ambition. And, and that played a role in the writing of this telegram because he was stuck, as he saw it, in far off, Moscow, far off Moscow, Moscow. He had not been invited to the Yalta conference, the summit conference that FDR held with Stalin and Churchill a year earlier. He'd been left parked in Moscow, resentful of that. And Kennan was anxious to make his mark. He was anxious to get out of Moscow, where he'd been for a while, and to, to make his mark in Washington. And so when people in the State Department asked George Kennan uh, to interpret Stalin's kind of ideological highly ideological speech of February 9th, 1946. Cannon said, all right, as he put it in his memoir, now I'm going to let them have it. So he laid out, he, he uh, dictated, he was actually sick in bed. And that was part of the reason for the impetus. He was feeling lousy, dictated this long telegram, uh, almost 6,000 word telegram, the longest telegram ever sent to the Department of State, in which he laid out uh, reasons why the United States should pivot from trying to get along with the Soviet Union to containing or limiting or ending, blocking the expansion of the Soviet Union, which had occurred at the end of World War II as the Soviet armies pushed back the Germans. So he was in Moscow. Your book makes very clear that he had a love for Russia um, that almost and possibly rivaled his love for his own country of America. Uh, at one point, you note uh, or that you call him the always- always the Russian nationalist. Um, but he also, while he was uh, working with William Bullitt, who was the first ambassador uh, to the Soviet Union from America, um, he also witnessed the Stalin purges. So did he have more of a love-hate relationship with now Soviet Russia? And how did that relationship, his relationship with the country, influence his policy ideas? Like you said, now I'm going to let them have it. Right. Okay. So as you can see, I think probably some of your listeners are thinking, what? What's this guy? He's the, he's the author of the containment doctrine in the Cold War, and he loved Russia. How does that add up? Well, it adds up to a complicated person, right? A compl complicated, complex person. What he loved was the people of Russia, the culture, the culture, tradition, especially traditional culture of Russia, the literature and so forth. And he regarded the Soviet government, that was part of Russia, but it was a part of Russia that he that he hated, partly because of the purges, Stalin's bloody 
you know, really in some respects, insane purges of Communist Party officials, Red Army generals and other officers in the late 1930s, which destroyed a number of Kennan's friends, as well as, you know, other people in the Russian establishment. So seeing that up close, because he was reporting on these purges and uh, viewing them during the day, viewing the, the, the uh, melodramatic show, show trials of these figures, uh, at viewing them during the day and then writing reports of Washington at night, that really imbued Kennan with a very strong distaste for the Soviet government. And what he saw at the end of World War II, the expansion of Soviet influence into countries like Hungary and Poland was also an expansion and that Soviet-style secret police state. So that's what he hated. But of course, that he saw that government as having been imposed, imposed on the Russian people. So to an extent, did he... I don't want to say that uh, the long telegram was like vindictive on his part, but when you are witnessing these purges, um, and like you said, some of these people were, were friends of his and the other diplomats from various countries, especially America, um, you are helpless with it. You, you mentioned in the book that when they first arrived to Moscow, they were just inundated with parties and, and goodwill. Um, Stalin, I think, uh, mentioned, like, asked uh, Bullet, hey, where what do you want, you know? And, and Bullet was like, well, and I'd like a, our embassy to be in this place and look like this. And he's like, you'll, you'll have it. And so there was such supposed promise there. And then all of a sudden, shortly thereafter, you see this, this purge, this violent purge um, that he was helpless and all of them were helpless to do anything about. Was there a bit of vindictiveness or vengeance um, I think I that? think there was to some extent. I, I I should back up a little bit and explain one reason why Stalin was so welcoming and hospitable toward the Americans is that Stalin feared in 1933-34 that the Japanese, who were of course advancing into China already, that the Japanese would invade Siberia and, and take some of that sparsely populated, rich in resources territory away from Russia. So Stalin was afraid of that, and he knew that the United States was also, you know, kind of Japanese, and he hoped for an alliance with the United States. So that's part of Stalin's really, you know, laying out the red carpet for Bullet and all the other Americans. And then, so, but then, but then that war scare passed, and it was clear the Japanese were not going to invade Siberia. And also, it was clear that Roosevelt was not about to accept an alliance with the Soviet Union. So, the kind of the reasons for that honeymoon ended. Uh, and then, one of uh, the top officials of the Soviet Union, Kirov, was assassinated in late December 1934. And Stalin, kind of fearful of who knew who was going to be assassinated next, kind of overreacted, and that launched the purges. And we could go into that, it's complicated, but that's what launched the purges. But to answer your question, whether to what extent the long telegram is kind of a, a reprisal, uh, to some extent, yeah. I mean, in a way, in a basic kind of a way, because after all, containment is an idea of isolating the Soviet Union, isolate the Russians, not allow the further expansion. And one thing that Kennan hated about the Soviet uh, police state was that it isolated him from the Russian people because during the purges and even after, it was a crime for ordinary Russians to associate with foreigners. So that meant that Kennan 
no longer go to Russian parties, no longer have Russian friends. And so he was isolated from the Russian people. And, and I, don't want, I don't want to oversimplify this, but one element, one element in his pushing for isolating, containing the Soviet Union was to get back at them for isolating him. It's very interesting. But like you said, uh, a very complex uh, figure um, personally, which you which you make very clear in your book, which uh, makes it even the, that more much more interesting is that you're you're getting a, a bit of the man and how he thought about himself, and then sort of that re- is reflected upon his his views on the world. So he is known for the containment policy, the long telegram of forty six, and I believe he wrote the X article for Foreign Affairs the following year in forty seven. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So he, and in a way, he was so successful in pushing for containment in those two documents, the Long Telegram and the Mr. X article, that it became, as he put it, an albatross around his neck as he tried to move beyond that for other policies, other things. You know, even at his, as the book points out, even at his um, his funeral, that's what people remembered. That's what we started off this interview with. I mean, understandably, but, you know, Kennedy was interested in much more than just the Long Telegram and Mr. X. And that's what I want to get to um, next is he's known for the containment policy, uh, the X article. So this is 46, 47, but you, you mentioned in, in 48, as, as close as 48, he starts to have, I wouldn't go so far as to say a change of heart, but wanting to mess with how America is utilizing its foreign policy against Soviet, the Soviet Union. But the containment policy was used uh, throughout the, the rest of the Cold War. Um, but as I say, you argue in the biography that Kennan thought America should move away from that policy after a while and conduct a policy of disengagement. Um, why did he Why did he move away from containment? And what was disengagement? Okay. I think Kennan saw containment as kind of a if-then, an if-then proposition. If you contain the Soviets, which again had been expanded into these countries, as a result of the Red Army rolling westward and defeating the Germans, right? So, okay, if you stop them there at the point where they were in 1945, if you contain them, then Kennan thought, then the, the best thing to do, the, 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 as a diplomat, after all, he's a diplomat, the best thing to do is to engage them then in negotiations to reduce tensions, particularly to reduce tensions with regard to nuclear weapons, which soon became an issue, and also, uh, to reduce the possibility of a war breaking out over Germany, which both sides occupied. So, so again, he saw containment as an if-then proposition. Contain the Russians and then move on to negotiations and disengagement. Disengagement <clears throat> is the name of a, kind of an approach that he, a name he, he coined in the 1950s, particularly the late 1950s, the idea of a negotiated mutual withdrawal of American and Russian forces from Germany, where they were confronting each other on the German-German frontier, which, which remember, was a really hot spot of the Cold War, uh, disengaged from that tank-to-tank, soldier-to-soldier confrontation so that the Americans and Russians would withdraw from Germany, allow Germany to reunify as a neutral nation, and basically demilitarize, or to a large extent, demilitarize Europe in terms of the superpowers. Kennedy wanted to return to a situation where Russia and the United States were largely on their own territory rather than engage in a forward operation face-to-face in the heart of Europe. Because you saw that as dangerous. Yeah, and, and 
with the containment policy, and I, I want to talk about sort of the expansion. So you have his view of if you can contain them to their 1945 borders, then we can sort of move in some other areas, different directions uh, on how we're dealing with the Soviets. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it doesn't seem like the Soviet Union was really interested in retaining those borders. They wanted to continue to expand. But I've always been told that Stalin was more of a national communist and Trotsky was sort of a universal global communist. He wanted it to spread throughout the globe. But under Stalin's regime, the Soviet Union continued to expand. And so it seems to me it's like, well, you can say that Stalin was, you know, strictly almost a regionalist or just a nationalist, but that expansion continued. And I would think that the Americans were probably thinking, well, Okay, Kenan, you have a, you have a point about holding their borders to where they were in 1945, but that's not taking place. So we have to continue this push towards containment with the threat of military confrontation. Does does that fit? Well, I can't. I mean, that's you're presenting it. You know, basically Washington's viewpoint, mm-hmm. which became the that was a prevailing policy. Okay, <clears throat> Kennedy saw it a little differently, actually. He's, and also, let me just back up a little bit in terms of the, what Stalin did or did not do. Stalin was, a, a, you know, as you put it, and I agree, a, a, a nationalist, a communist and a nationalist, a, a Russian nationalist as well as a communist. But he was also conservative in the sense of careful. Um, for instance, you know, the largest single party in France was the Communist Party. The largest single party in Italy was the Communist Party. Stalin, I mean, the record shows Stalin cautioned the French Communist Party and the Italian Communist Party not to try to take power, to, to, to not to not to be as aggressive or as ambitious as they could have been. Uh, Stalin was afraid of rocking the boat. Um, in the Greek Civil War, where Stalin had promised Churchill that he would not intervene, he did not intervene. Um, uh, Tito of Yugoslavia did. I mean, there are other instances where Stalin uh, let's put it this way: when China was about when China was about to become communist, Stalin kind of kind of alienated Mao at first by saying to Mao Zedong, "Well, don't don't be too don't be too ambitious, don't be too careful. I mean, don't be careful. Don't think about necessarily taking all of China right away." I mean, he was nervous about a reaction from the West. Okay, <clears throat> and also Kennan's as Kennan saw it, if you had disengagement, the Russians might. You might get the Russians out of not just the 1945, where they were in 1945. You might indeed roll them back to the borders, closer to the borders of the Soviet Union. He saw the Soviets as, as occupying Eastern Europe in part because a prime Russian fear from 1945 to 1990 was that West Germany would seek revenge with the aid of a nuclear-armed America. That was their nightmare. I mean, that's not something that we often think about. But that, again, if you look at the the... Uh, now formally secret documents of all kinds of Soviet officials, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, you name it, that the West Germans, whom they were in awe of, especially after what the Germans had done in World War II, would unite with nuclear or use American nuclear weapons and wreak revenge on Russia. So the idea, as as Kennan realizing that, believed that if you offered the Russians the the possibility of 
demilitarizing West Germany and East Germany and getting the United States out, no longer occupying West Germany, and the Soviets would no longer occupy Eastern Germany, that would reassure the Russians with regard to this fear of Germany using American strength to get revenge. Anyway, that's what Kennan thought. And <clears throat> I mean, there's some evidence that the Russians might have been receptive to this. When Kennan put forth a disengagement uh, argument in a series of radio speeches to, over the BBC in 1957, Khrushchev, on several occasions after that, mentioned Kennan by name and said, those are good ideas. These are the basis for negotiation. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what Khrushchev said. And we have we have a record of his saying that to other Americans. Kennan would make the point. Now we could come back and say, well, Kennan, Khrushchev was just saying that, you know, how do we know he would have followed through? <clears throat> but as Kennan would argue, well, we never found out because we never gave it a try. Um, because when Kennan proposed disengagement in the late 1950s, the foreign policy establishment in the United States, both Republican and Democrat, came down on him like a ton of bricks um, and were intent on humiliating him publicly. And they did humiliate him publicly by making fun of him. And in fact, Dean Acheson, his former boss of Secretary of State, Dean Acheson compared Kennan to a chattering chimpanzee. And this is in the, the lead, an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, the establishment uh, journal with regard to foreign relations. So um, the point, Kennan, I think he's right. We'll never fight. We'll never know because we never risked, because the, we never risked disengaging because the Cold War was really advantageous in a lot of respects for American policy. Because the United States, as a result of the Cold War, had the loyalty of West Germany, the loyalty of Western Europe, the loyalty of Japan, and those were prizes that American leaders feared they would lose if there was a relaxation of tension. Also, the military-industrial complex. So, uh, you know, there, there are reasons for American leaders and many of the American people to regard the Cold War as not a bad situation. So let me ask you, do you think that Kennan regretted creating more or less the containment policy? And do you personally think that the containment policy was a success or a failure or a good idea or a bad idea? What are, what are your thoughts on it? Too? Those are easy questions. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> I think that Kennan, Kennan, you know, Kennan criticized himself a lot, but he, he didn't criticize, he often, or most often, did not criticize himself about the big things. So he, Kennan said, the problem with containment was, he said that I, I, he said, I envisioned containment as a political and economic policy, not a military oriented policy. But he said, people misinterpreted my policy, officials misinterpreted my policy, and militarized our approach to the Soviet Union. I think Kennan is wrong here because Kennan presented in the Mr. X article and the uh, in the long telegram, he presented the Soviet threat as so, so, so much a danger, such an existential threat. That no wonder, no wonder Americans in reading those documents thought, okay, we better beef up our military. So I think Kennan, in a way, was you know, deluding himself as the result of his impact. But he, he he was sorry. He was sorry the containment was militarized. But I think he helped set the groundwork for that. Um, and then your question, do I think containment worked? Yeah, I think, and Kennan would also say it worked. But I think Kennan would say, to some extent, maybe he's right, that the Cold War continued for a long time, for 45 years. And during 
it's part of the 45-year period. There were very dangerous crises, the Berlin crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, others, that could have led to a nuclear war, which is something Ken worried about. So I think in figuring out whether something was a success or not, whether that policy containment was a success or not, you have to factor in somehow the risk that we ran of a nuclear war. And we could say, well, no one wanted that. But that's happy talk. Accidents happen. You know, miscalculations happen. Yeah, and I, I think to an extent, um, and you, you're you're not really, <laughs> our audience knows this, you're, you're not going to find me uh, sort of defending um, the State Department, uh, typically, uh, on domestic or, 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 well, on foreign policy issues. But it seems to me that State Department was sort of backed into a corner on a risk-reward factor where it's just like well we can make a change like you said like the risk does the risk outweigh the reward or does the reward outweigh the risk and from my money it seems like they thought the risk far outweighed the reward into the, an the risk of making a change right yeah and to an extent it almost was like well if it ain't broke don't fix it i mean this is this is our policy now um, the whole world hasn't been blown up just yet, so let's not make any any rash moves. Do you think that was in a simplified version the the way that the Americans yeah, are I thinking? Th- I, yeah, I do, I do. I think you you stated it very well. But it, it, again, Kennedy would come back and <clears throat> say, "Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it." But and you said the catastrophe hasn't happened yet. But he would come back and say, "But it could." And, and once it once it does, you're in a whole different ballgame. Right. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you you make a choice and something bad hasn't happened yet. But the moment you make a change and something bad takes place, irregardless of the change or regardless of the change, I hate it when people say irregardless, regardless of the change, something bad happens, well, people will automatically blame, well, you made that change, that's why happen it's the the causation that's right that's right and i think i also i mean i think there's a parallel here with climate change right i mean you know so far well you guys have had more catastrophes than we have but um you know it seems that the risks are are, are change are, are are more than a lot of people want to bear um <clears throat> right and also but i think it's also to keep in mind the benefits to the united states of being the leader of the free world um there are all kinds of economic benefits it was good for American industry, good for American leaders like to, you know, have the, the idea of the president is the most powerful person in the world. That's something Americans like to think about, you know, like, like to, it feels comfortable. Uh, we, we hear that even today. So, um, you know, in a way, the United States, like the Soviet Union, but the United States in a more informal way had an empire. The, the, the free world is kind of an empire, not that we ran it. But it was nations inclined, inclined to act as we wanted, to do what we wanted. Right. We made the rules. Everybody just abided by them. Right. Not completely, you know, not right. completely, but but generally. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, in, in a way, and a, and a lot of times I, I make comparisons to Frankenstein, the Mary Shelley book or the creation, uh, to an extent, I almost see Kennan, you know, with the containment policy, this was his foreign policy Frankenstein where like you said the only thing 
greater than his ability and his brilliance was his ambition. He wanted to be known within the power ranks so much that he, and I don't want to say that that's why he put the containment policy together, but as you point out in your book, he loved the attention, the prestige, and the honor that he received from creating the containment policy, um, the long telegram and the X article, um, that he benefited greatly from it. But later on, he sort of viewed it as this Frankenstein of his own creation or the Frankenstein's monster uh, of his own creation and was like, well, how do I go about dismantling it? And in a way, though, the, the Frankenstein's monster is now moved into the hands of somebody else and he's no longer the doctor. He's no longer the one who has power over it. It's now transferred to somebody else. That's true. That's a very good way of putting it. I'd also say that, um, look, if George Cannon had never been born, if he had died along with his mother, we still would have had, in effect, the containment doctrine and the Cold War. In other words, Cannon popularized that idea in a very, two persuasive documents. He popularized it and personified it. But it would have probably been the case even if we didn't call it containment. Because the American policy was moving in that direction anyway in 1946-47. He was the right person at the right time with the right documents. So I want to move a, a little bit, well, actually a lot further, um, sort of in our modern era, uh, actually, our today. Um, so this past January, you wrote an article uh, for Foreign Affairs uh, entitled Kennan's Warning in Ukraine. What would Kennan think of the West's current stance with Putin's Russia? Um, and since you are obviously a foreign relations expert, what do you think of our stance? Well, I'm not sure how your listeners are going to react to this, but um, Kennan, Kennan would have seen our stance today is dangerous. Um, I mean, he was, again, he's a traditional person. He's conservative, small C, conservative. And you know, in traditional diplomacy, big countries, big countries have make sure they have friendly neighbors. I mean, the United States worked very hard for that. Think of the Monroe Doctrine with regard to Mexico, Central America, Canada, and so forth. That these nations are they're not under our control, but they also don't stray too far. I mean, think about how we feel about Cuba sixty years after the end of the Soviet Union because they they defied the United States. Well, Kennan saw the world that way and and thought. He was against the eastward expansion of NATO. I mean, he was around for the 1990s, and NATO was expanding to Poland and Hungary and, and beginning to have ties with Ukraine. Uh, not admitting Ukraine, but NATO had military exercises, naval exercises with Ukraine. Uh, Kennedy saw that as dangerous. Uh, he thought he said that he thought the Russians would never accept it. So that's not to say that U.S. policy is to just do what the Russians want, but it's. I think Kennedy would say that it's, in a way, a little naive to think that the United States can, over the long run, we're talking about the long run now, look at Afghanistan, we're there for 20 years, and yet what did we accomplish? Over the long run, Kennedy would say it's kind of naive to think that the United States can maintain a robust military presence so far from the United States and so close to Russia. I mean, Kennedy would say the answer there is some kind of diplomacy. Uh, and you know, you needed some, you need some kind of arrangement to end this war that the Russians could live with and the Ukrainians could live with. Now, I think the reaction to that, a lot of people will say, was justification. Well, 
neither side wants to negotiate. Kennedy would respond to that, which he did respond on other occasions. He said, look, <clears throat> what seems like incompatible positions, what seems like divergent positions, you know, X here, Y over there, is only the asking price. It, it, the diplomacy is a bargaining, bargaining process. So you need slow, patient, secret diplomacy. You can't negotiate through the newspapers. So because if you give any concession, then immediately that's your own site says, what'd you give that away for? So slow, patient diplomacy by professional diplomats to try to arrive at some kind of compromise. I mean, and let's face it, this war will end. I mean, God forbid, barring a catastrophe, will end with some kind of compromise. I mean, that's probably what's going to happen. Kennedy would argue that the process of moving toward that compromise is something that have should have a greater priority than than it seems to be having in U.S. policy. Hey, you mentioned uh, the military-industrial complex, um, which, you know, we're in our fifth season. Uh, we we mention the military-industrial complex at least once uh, every season because um, it is a major concern. It should be a major concern for every American. Um, and, of course, this goes back to Eisenhower's uh, farewell address. Um Speaking of the military-industrial complex, in your in your article that you wrote the other day uh, for Foreign Affairs, uh, you call Kennan a prophet ignored. Um, this is the excuse I think that is given for ignoring the prophet that was George Kennan. Um, which is the military-industrial complex. You, you, you mentioned the war in Afghanistan. 20 years uh, in Afghanistan. Obviously, we were in Iraq. Um, we had, you know, Korea, Vietnam, um, and a smattering of other, other conflicts, Desert Storm. You, you have these ongoing conflicts that cater to the military-industrial complex, and I think that that is the excuse that is given for ignoring the prophet uh, so I want to mention this while reading your book, um, and I did point this out in my review, I noticed Kennan was prescient about foreign relation issues, including uh, the post-Cold War relations, the Balkan Wars, the Russo-Ukrainian tensions, expanding NATO, uh, trying to turn China democratic, um, and among other things. Why do you think those in power stopped listening to him, and do you agree with what I'm saying, that it's strictly about the military-industrial complex. Well, I think that's part of it. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, after all, all this money, when I give Ukraine dollars, we're giving them weapons. And so the U.S. government is paying for U.S. companies to be making weapons. I mean, profits, these obviously is profitable. Uh, but I don't think that's the only reason. I go back to the idea that the free world is kind of an informal empire that gives the United States certain prerogatives. Uh, you know, the, the fact that the dollar is the world currency, which is something the Chinese are cha challenging uh, very recently, actually. Uh, the fact that the U.S. is the world currency allows the United States to run balance of payments, balance of trade deficits, which we pay for with dollars, which you know, figure this digital, but figuratively go out into the world and the rest of the world uses to conduct their trade. That allows us to have a credit card that we never, <laughs> we never, you know, always over overcharge and we never have to pay it off. That's a deal. That's a deal, right? The American people benefit from that. So, um, so I think there's a number of reasons why the United States, and also, you know, there's an imperial mindset. Leaders like having 
being the United States as the world leader, which look, my view here is that it's un, in the 21st century, it's unrealistic to think the United States can exercise predominance in right up to the borders of other very powerful countries like China and like Russia. I mean, it's after 19, it's, in a way we're still getting, moving away from 1945 where the rest of the world was devastated. Um, and it's only natural that the United States is going to have to share power to some extent with other very powerful countries developing their own military. I think it would be, Kennan saw that and it'd be wise, wise for American leaders. That's not to say we're gonna be isolated. We're never gonna be isolated. We're not isolated under George Washington. Um, we trade with other countries, but um, the United States needs to be careful to think about what it can do and what's worth doing and what's gonna benefit the American people. After all, as you said, military industrial complex. I mean, I live in Connecticut. Therefore, I believe we need to build as many submarines as possible. <laughs> electric <laughs> boat. But, yeah. but, you know, our, and our senators do vote for that. But the point is, for the country as a whole, for the country as a whole, how much are we benefiting from this engagement? Let's put it this way. Um, the people who pay the most cost for this are the, the soldiers. The people, many of them come from, you know, lower economic uh, strata, people of color, uh, a lot of them new, recent immigrants, these are the people who bear the burdens, uh, you know, the people whose lives are, uh, who, people suffer from IEDs and, you know, and so forth. Um, so I think that's something we need. It's, it's not the people in power. They don't send their, they don't send their sons and daughters to war. There's some exceptions. Okay. There are exceptions, but by and large, they don't. Yeah. It's the old, uh, Credence Clearwater Revival song, uh, where he's talking about, it's not the Senator's son that, that, that goes to war. Um, do you, cause you mentioned, you know, our, the military industrial complex, um, other countries not really investing as much as maybe they could or that, or that they should in their own military to build up. Do you think America right now is in, or has been for a while under a containment policy of no longer the Soviet union, but the world? And I, I say this because you think of the 20th century with World War I and World War II, you had massive military buildups with obviously Britain, um, they own the seas, um, Germany with, with their buildup, um, and obviously France was a big player. You had these buildups, and when that took place, you had this tension because they were so close together and war ends up breaking out and not just little skirmishes obviously world war one world war two do you think american policy is to the extent thinking well if we have the biggest guns to say it that way if we have the largest military if we're the most powerful we can control everything and make sure things don't get out of hand to the point where they did twice last century. Do you think it's a sort of a global containment policy? I think so. I think that's a good way to put it again. But also in a way it's it's patting yourselves on the back a little bit too much. I mean, think about this that I mean China, we tend to regard China as belligerent, militant, you know, building up those islands in the South China Sea and so forth, criticize them and so forth. But they did broker that peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now <clears throat> I think some American officials are not too happy about that because they don't want to see China doing the intermediary. But there are people in Saudi Arabia 
in Iran, and particularly the poor people in Yemen, where they're waging a civil war, supported both Saudi Arabia and Iran supported opposing sides in that civil war. Yemen, obviously, incredibly poor country, no water, it's a total mess. Um, who are going to be better off? You know, so I mean, I think the the United States should try more to cooperate with other countries, uh, even bigger countries, and and to try to preserve. We can't do it all by ourselves, and to think. Even if we have the biggest military, we can do it all by ourselves. is is naive, is naive. I I go back here. Just if you spare me a minute, go back to Franklin Roosevelt, who had his Roosevelt's idea was not one policeman. I mean, one policeman in the world was Adolf Hitler's idea. Roosevelt's idea was you need four policemen to run the world: the United States, Britain, uh, Russia, and China. And that idea, I think, bears some revisiting. Revisiting. That's not to say that the four countries beat up on all the others, but the idea is you try to have, to some extent, spheres of influence, to some extent, some extent recognizing the nations want to have friendly neighbors. That's the way the world has worked for millennia. You know, uh, speaking of, because like I told you, we could end up talking for 24 hours straight, but I, you made me think of something with the G7. Um, the, the situation with G7 is like most of those, I think, if not all of them are more or less democratic nations. Right. Um, right. the, the idea with the U S Britain, China, and Russia, that would be sort of like a G4, but they wouldn't all be on the same page to an extent. Do you think that that, that opposition there would be more beneficial because you're getting to to quote a phrase, uh, both sides of the aisle? Yeah, I think, you know, it's actually Stalin put it to an American reporter in 1947, you know, as the Cold War was getting heating up. He said, look, we still can get along as we did in World War II. He said that to a reporter. He said, look, you have your system, which is different from ours. So what? You take care of your system, we'll take care of ours. Now, that doesn't say, not to say there's not dirty tricks and so forth, back and forth. But Domestic ideology does not have to influence foreign policy. And that's something Kennan believed. Domestic ideology, you know, democratic capitalism in our case and so forth, uh, does not have to uh, influence to a large extent your foreign policy. Because if you do, if you're trying to promote democracy all around the world, then, you know, it's, it, gets, it gets messy. It gets messy because what's democracy mean to Iraq, in Iraq? What does it mean in Afghanistan? And, and look, we look, we could look, at ourselves and say, what kind of model of democracy do we offer? I mean, we, we had, you know, whatever, you know, the partisanship in this country is, is, is out of hand. Um, so what I'm saying here is I think the, the number one interest of U.S. foreign policy, I think, is to protect the American people. Number one, protect the American people, the actual people. And two, to try to preserve peace in the world. I 100% agree with what you're saying, that democracy is often oversold to the point where when you say, well, what does Iran think of that or Afghanistan or, or places like that? It's like they see in the instituting of democracy as a collapse of their current ruling system uh, in very much the same way as, you know, what we did in, you know, the end of the, the 18th century were, uh, you know, pushing out the monarchy. Um, obviously that was, you know, a bit of democratic system because they had the parliament. Of course, we didn't really at the end sort of benefit with the taxation stuff, but I think the overselling of democracy as the end all be all, like this is the best way to do it. 
um, is, I wouldn't say it's unfounded, but that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough argument or a tough debate to win, especially when you're dealing with, with other countries. Right. And as Kenneth, Kenneth actually spoke to this, he said, look, what we should do should be is the model, a model and, and have is try to perfect our system as best as we can. And if other countries, it's a, then it's a shining city on the hill. Okay. That the shining city on the hill. Uh, you don't come down from the hill and try to impose it, it on everybody else. So, you know, look look to your own, look to yourself. I think that was something he believed in, and it's a lot of other people believe in too. It's uh, we have enough problems here at home. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we do. Uh, my last question, Frank. Uh, again, thank you so much for for being on the show. This is I loved this conversation. I've got maybe about 107 more questions to ask you, but I'm going to ask you just one more. Um, we mentioned the Ukraine-Russia uh, war going on right now. You said it will, you think it will probably come down to some type of compromise, um, hopefully so. Um, what do you think will be the end? And I, I encourage people to read your, your foreign affairs article that you wrote in January because it is a very enlightening, uh, under, it's a good, to give people a good understanding of like the the contradictions there of having an independent Ukraine with Russia and everything like that. I just want people to people to read that. But what do you think the end of this this war is going to look like? I don't know. I mean, if I did, I'd be Washington, you know. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, actually, I, I could say that one of the things I'm worried about is that the longer this war goes on, I think we should be thinking about this. The longer this war goes on, the more the crazies, the real crazies in Russia are come to the fore. You think about the kind of really like fascist type groups like the Wagner group and so forth. We're getting more credence, more power, uh, the more, the longer the war goes on. I think also, I mean, I, I, if you just tolerate me for, for a minute, there was a New York Times story the other day about the Finland's joining NATO, okay? Finland joined NATO formally. And there's a New York Times story about it. And they quoted General uh, Admiral Stavridis, who's, I'm not sure you pronounce his name correctly, but Stavridis, Stavridis, the former NATO commander. And he made the point in talking about Finland's joining NATO that now Russia has an 800 mile border, an additional 800 mile border to defend the Finnish Russian border. And he said that's going to make Putin's calculations that much more difficult. Now, that's the story, that's what he, the quote. But it struck me. Look, there's a border, right? You can go from either side can attack that border. It can be attacked by Russia against Finland, Finland against Russia. But this NATO, former NATO commander was assuming that the border would have to be defended by Russia, which meant he was assuming, he was assuming that NATO is more of an offensive than a defensive alliance. That's one thing. Another thing is that the more we press Putin on conventional forces, the more we incentivize Putin to use the nuclear option, which is extreme and will get get us into a wholly different ballgame, which is something we don't want to encourage. So to answer your question, you know, beware of a Ukrainian victory could very well lead to a dire situation in Russia in terms of people coming to power that we don't want to see and Russia, you know, using nuclear weapons. Again, something Ukraine is not the 51st state. No matter how brave we are, it's not the 51st thing. <laughs> very, very good point. I will probably use that as a quote 
Um, no, it is not the 51st state, and we've been treating it uh, like it has been. Uh, to your point of, of, of Finland, and then if, if Ukraine actually you know, wins this war and then joins NATO, um, at the beginning of the war, when it, when it broke out, I was given a speech at um, a local um, Rotary Club, and one of the questions I was asked was, what do you think of the Ukraine-Russia war? Um, what do you think Putin's doing and everything like that? And I was given my explanation. I said, but I said, ultimately, I said, you've had this n- expansion of NATO to the borders of Russia. And I said, it doesn't matter who it is. I said, but when you back a snake into a corner, that snake is only given one option, and that is to strike out. Um, and so I think I said, this is what Putin is doing from from my perspective is an inevitable reaction. Um, and I think to your point with with Finland uh, joining NATO and then if Ukraine uh, wins this war and if they join NATO, I think I think it is uh, you are asking, you are begging for trouble and a cynic, which I do try not to be, but a cynic will look at NATO as, well, apparently those who are running NATO were so disappointed that another world war didn't break out because they love the military industrial complex so much that they are going to create world war three in order to utilize on a massive, massive scale, the military industrial complex. That's the cynics view that I try not to have, but I think that we are begging for trouble when we continue to expand this NATO. Right. Let me make one final point. Think about from the Russian point of view, it's always good to put the shoe on the other foot. Think about if China had a military alliance, let's say with Venezuela, okay? They had a military alliance with Venezuela. And then they're advancing that alliance. They invite Central American countries, Nicaragua, Salvador, and they're interested in joining this military alliance, right? A military alliance with China. And then China starts negotiating with Mexico. And Mexico wants thinking about joining. How does the United States respond? You know the United States is not going to put up with that. Right. I mean, and that strikes us as incredibly aggressive, right? But that's how it looks to the Russians. Putting the shoe on the other put on the other foot, on the other foot is so important. And and I think that it goes back to what we were saying about democracy being sold so heavily that you have Americans in general thinking, well, NATO's not wrong. We're not wrong because we are selling a product that everybody should buy. Right. It's like your loyalty to your home team. It's like your loyalty. You don't question, you know, the Houston Astros. Those are your team, right? That's You don't question it. And democracy is our is our home team, you know, and, and, it, and that's the way a lot of people in, uh, interact emotionally, emotionally act. Yeah. And it's... Uh... I, I make this statement all the time, but it's the um, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And I this is we are paving a very dangerous path by our undying belief in democracy for everyone. Um, and NATO is always right. Uh, Russia is always wrong. And I've had my suspicions for a very long time about the constant badgering belittling undermining of of russia and i'm like look you cannot like russia and that's fine but when you have power players that are continuing to poke the bear to (laughs) since russia is the bear you know you continue to poke the bear 
you're asking for trouble. Um, and here we are. How does how does that benefit the American people? Right. Right. I mean, really, how does that benefit the American people? It it doesn't. And I know that there are a lot of people that are so upset about billions and billions of dollars being poured into Ukraine and giving all this this weaponry. And and I try, as you say, to I try to keep one shoe on on each foot uh, and try to understand, like, well, here's you know. Example A, if we don't get involved, and then here's example B, if we get too involved, and it's like it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation where it's it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. It's sort of like ending the containment policy all of a sudden. Like, well, what the hell is going to happen next? And who knows? So, Frank, again, I loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Man, uh, thank you so much for the book, Ken uh, in the Life Between Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you to read this book, get this book wherever books are sold, because you will learn not just about this man's life and how he influenced America's foreign policy, but America's foreign policy in general, especially uh, last half of the 20th century. It's a great read. Um, and Frank, uh, this is a great interview. Thank you again for joining well, thank, me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope that all of you enjoyed that conversation with Frank Castigliola. Uh, as I made mention numerous times, go check out the book, uh, Ken and the Life Between Worlds. You can buy it. Uh, Madison is going nuts over here, so she is ready for the show to be over. Um, and I really don't have anything else to say. So with that, I hope that everybody had a great Easter weekend. And yeah, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We will talk to you next week, and Alan will be with us. We got a special guest uh, lined up. He's actually going to be in Paris, which is going to be pretty cool. Not Alan and not me, unfortunately, but our guest will be in Paris, so that's going to be pretty cool. Not that he's going to give us a tour or anything, but it'll be neat that uh, I think it'll be the first time that we interview somebody who is actually in France. I have uh, interviewed somebody who is French, uh, we talked about Alexis de Tocqueville, I think about two seasons ago, and we talked to somebody this uh, season from the Republic of Ireland. We've had uh, some UK people as well, so it's, hey, you know, international. International is what we do here. So, ladies and gentlemen, we will talk to you later. Uh, be sure to subscribe. Go check out our documentaries, and all right, see you later.